I'm Chad Main, the founder of legal services company Percipient, and this is Technically Legal, a podcast about legal technology, legal innovation, and the impact tech is having on the law. On today's episode, I have a conversation with lawyer turned legal tech founder, Dorna Moini. We talk about her company, Gavel. That's a platform that helps users automate the creation of all kinds of legal documents. Ever since she was a kid, Dorna Morini knew she wanted to be a lawyer. Specifically, she wanted to be a human rights lawyer. So right after she received an accounting degree from NYU, she headed to law school. In further pursuit of her goal to be a human rights lawyer, while at law school, Dorna served as a law clerk at the UN International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. But after talking to a trusted professor, she decided that before pursuing a career in human rights law, it might be best to get some other types of legal experience, so she ended up working in big law for several years. Even though Dorna's clients were large employers and big corporations, she never lost the desire to use her law degree for the greater good. And while she was at these big law firms, she took out a bunch of pro bono work, especially in the area of domestic relations. It was while doing this work that she figured out pretty quickly that there was a lot of repetitive form and template-based work that was taking time away from other work that actually required some of her legal skills and analysis. So she asked a friend to build her an app that would fill out forms for her based on information she input. Basically, what she wanted was a TurboTax for domestic law. Her friend developed it for her, and the app was a success. And people within and without her law firm were using it. It was so successful that people from other countries found out about it and were asking her to design apps that would help them fill out forms related to their legal work. This got Dorna thinking that maybe she'd start a company, and it was at that point she decided to take what she was then calling at the time, Help Self Legal, to the masses. So in 2018, she left her law firm job and became a full-fledged legal tech entrepreneur. Eventually, she changed the name of her company to Document, and the company started to automate form creation for all types of legal documents. And ultimately, the company turned into what is now called Gavel. This is a company that helps users automate all kinds of form creations for legal work, both relating to legal tasks and running a law firm. To get ready for this podcast, I did research on Dorna's background like I always do. And Dorna's background is what you'd expect for a lawyer. She got a bachelor's degree from NYU. She then went to law school at USC. She did courtships both for law firms and for judicial bodies. But there was something also that stuck out to me. Did you or did you not intern at Vice Magazine somewhere? Oh my gosh, I did in Paris for like a semester. (laughs) How does that happen? I think I was just looking for an internship. I was really into, I mean, when you're in Paris, I was was into fashion and somehow got connected to someone at Vice and basically asked for an internship and started working there. (laughs) And what year was this? This was 2007. So we just talked about LA, you're from LA. I remember when that first came out. So I was in LA, late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, that's when Vice first came out. I remember it was a uh, paper magazine. You actually had to go get it. It was, it was really cool. They always had the most fun. They still write about a lot of like unique topics. Yeah. And so I think that's always what attracted me to it. And the, I love like the long form deep dives they do into yeah. different topics. That's a cool magazine. And then, so you go to law school after NYU. So I don't think there's a gap. Was it always your plan to go to law school? It was always my plan. Actually, from when I was a young child, I my parents are from Iran, and so I used to go back to Iran a lot. And I saw a big disparity in the legal systems that of Iranian legal system and the American legal system. And so I always wanted to go to law school, but I always wanted to become a human rights lawyer, actually. So that's why I went to law oh. school. That's sort of like the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, every law student <laughs> wants to go go work in human rights and do good. I was always planning on going. If that's your MO, you want to go to law school, why do you choose econ? I was originally an English major, 
And then I just got really interested in econ and also didn't know if there were like huge career prospects being an English major if you don't go to law yeah. school. So uh, I think I, I was just really interested in the econ topics and felt like it was still relevant to anything that I was going to do in the legal sphere as well. So just seemed like I could read my books myself and then have a greater understanding of how the world works outside of that. Did you find any benefit to econ, coming from an econ background or e econ degree when you got into law school? That's a good question. You're probably the first person who's asked <laughs> me about my econ degree for like, since I graduated probably. But maybe more at like a high level of just helping me understand how the world works from a macro and microeconomic right. standpoint and being able to operate in it. But I don't know if all the specific concepts that we learned in, in econ necessarily have carried forward with me. So you get out of law school and ultimately end up at big law, Shepard Mullen, and then I think ultimately Sidley. What happened to the human rights lawyer aspirations? When I was in law school, I did a lot of work in human rights. So I was part of the human rights clinic where I actually went to intern as a clerk at the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And I also did some work on legislative drafting in West Africa and Mauritania. And so I was still very deeply embedded in wanting to go into human rights. But I actually asked one of my professors who ran the human rights clinic at USC Law School, I asked her, what would you recommend as the best path for getting into human rights law? And she had gone and worked at a big firm, clerked for a few years, and then gone into human rights. And so it seemed to me like the best foundation for my career, no matter what I was going to go do, was to go work. Like it, it seemed like she, you know, people were advising me that that would be a good path to go work at a big firm, get experience, not necessarily in the area of law, but just in becoming a professional and having a really crazy hard work ethic. And on top of that, I had student loans, so I was like, oh, well, it would be <laughs> nice to go <laughs> yeah. to go pay some of these off and, and make a real salary for, for a few years. And then I just stayed. I think that's what happened. I think that happens with, with a lot of people at firms or at big firms right. maybe in general. I enjoyed the work that I was doing. I was getting a lot of experience. I did a lot. Of, I actually got a lot of trial experience, got a lot of deposition experience. I did employment law early on, and so... You get a lot of opportunity as a junior associate. And so I think I just continued enjoying it, and I never left. And somehow seven years went by, and I was still there. But even though it wasn't human rights per se, you were still doing pro bono work. So you still had this public service aspect to it. How and when did you get involved with that? You're doing commercial law, employment law. How does this other stuff pop up? Because I always wanted to go work in human rights. I know pro bono is not exactly the same as human rights, but... I always wanted to work in something that was a service to the community. And so pro bono was the way that I was able to do that. I did pro bono in a few different areas of law, mainly in immigration and in domestic violence law. So that I usually just did with, you know, most firms allow you to do like 100 or 200 hours of pro bono work a year. And I fully took advantage of that. And that I felt gave me a lot of fulfillment and also gave me a lot of really great experience. Like I got to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do lead cases on my own, take clients to court and strategize for them on my own, where I, if I were running a case for, you know, one of our large clients, I would not have been able to, to get that level of ex experience. From that, the genesis of your company is this work. I think specifically it was domestic violence, legal work, right? Exactly. So it was actually from that 
resource-constrained nature of some of that pro bono work that led me into using legal technology to build a tool and then eventually build our company. I was finding that I was spending a lot of my time in these pro bono cases on routine and rules-based work. It may have been very complex work, you know, factually complex, legally complex, emotionally complex for our clients, but it was still rules-based. And so what I really wanted to do at the time was build something sort of like TurboTax, but not for tax, for domestic violence law. Because I felt that if I was able to build an end-to-end legal technology solution, then I would be able to spend my time on the parts of the case that you really can't use technology in. So going to court with the with the client, uh, taking on their appeal, doing things that technology couldn't handle. So that's where I got together with a friend of mine who was an engineer, and I asked him if he could build me build me this tool, essentially. And we thought about what the product should look like, launched it, and it was exactly that. It was a it was basically like TurboTax, but for domestic violence law in California. It touched on almost all of the 58 counties in California, though it's very fragmented and there are all these local rules we had to consider. And we launched that to actually three different audiences, to inside of my law firm where other pro bono attorneys were using it, to legal aid organizations that we were working with, and then third was to consumers. So consumers could actually get onto, we had a website, consumers could get onto the website, answer questions, be routed down different paths depending on their answers to those questions, and then generate documents and e-file them if they if e-filing was available in their case. What were the documents that were being spit out? All the documents were associated with a domestic violence restraining order. So the restraining order itself, and then depending on whether you were married to the person, you had kids with them, there may be spousal support, child support, child visitation, child custody. There were some tack-on things like, you know, if you wanted to get uh, gun restrictions, so there were all these little documents that may have been added onto that. And then in addition to that, it would help you craft your declaration. So it was a combination of the court forms that were mandated by the California Judicial Council and the declaration where you would have to actually enter all the things that occurred to you in that are leading to you filing for this domestic violence restraining order. And then how long did it take you to develop it? And was it only your friend that wrote the code? Yeah, so that probably took... I want to say maybe maybe three months or so. Oh, really? That's not bad. So we launched the MVP of the product, and I literally planned this product inside of Microsoft Word, like a lawyer, not in a real product tool. And I had all these bullets of like, if this happens, then I want this to happen. We built it out and then launched it. And then what happened was we were getting a lot of traction from the domestic violence user base, and we got a little bit of press around the tool. And as a result of some of that press, we started getting inbound interest from other lawyers in other areas of law and other jurisdictions. And that was what led us to the idea of domestic violence. Other domestic violence lawyers were reaching out. Not even domestic violence. So there were people in, there were three actually people that I remember on the first day that there was this one article that came out about this domestic violence tool that we built. The tool at the time was called Help Self Legal. The idea is like you could help yourself. Your tool. Your tool was Help Self. Our domestic violence tool was called Help Self. And so the Help Self launched. And then we started getting interest from lawyers who were not in the domestic violence space saying, I want to build something like this, but for my own area of law, which is a totally different area of law, maybe different jurisdiction. There were actually three examples that I always remember that um, of people who reached out to us. 
for someone in Malaysia who wanted to build a child support tool, someone in Arkansas wanted to build an eviction defense tool, and someone in Canada wanted to build a divorce tool. So all these different areas of law that people in other jurisdictions even, that people were thinking, oh, this is complicated, but it's rules-based, and I could turn this into a product that I could actually sell to my customers. And so that was really interesting. And at first, we were like, well, why don't we help them build these? You know, we have some technical expertise. They have the legal expertise. We'll combine forces and build these tools out. But that obviously would be a huge lift um, in terms of the technical side and the maintenance side. So that was what led us to the idea for what we're building now and then what we've built, which is to empower those experts, those legal experts, to be able to build their own tools without actually having to hire a software developer. So your tools are expert systems, right? Yes, essentially. Explain what that is. It's a type of AI, an expert system. Exactly. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say it's a type of AI because that's so accurate. It's it's the original form of AI that people don't think of as AI anymore. Uh, Now people think of AI as systems that almost make their decisions on their own. But the original AI is a system in which you embedded all of the rules and logic. And if you think about code, code is a bunch of if this and or this, then this type rules. And that's the same kind of concept we have in law. In any statute or in any case law, you have a bunch of if this and or this, then this type rules. And where that if then logic breaks down That's where we end up in litigation. That's where we end up in front of a jury to determine the facts of the case. But otherwise, we are attempting in law to make those types of rules. And so what an expert system does is it takes all of that expertise, those rules that we have embedded in our brains or embedded in statute or case law, and allows you to create a little machine out of it, like a, I hate the term robot lawyer, but you you can make a little bot or you can make an expert system that allows you to put inputs and get predictable outputs based on the rules that have been embedded. Going back to your TurboTax example, like if you have this many kids, you get this many deductions. If you have mortgage interest, you can deduct this much. It's all rules-based, right? So it's a similar, that's law, it's tax law, but you're just using it in a different different area. Exactly. Same concept applies. When we come back in just a moment, Dorna talks about making the jump from practicing lawyer to legal tech entrepreneur. And she also tells us how automation can create new business models for legal teams. I'm Chad Main, and you're listening to Technically Legal. So as 2018, Endorna's app, which she was calling Health Self Legal at the time, is getting noticed not only across the country, but across the world, and people are knocking at her door to create apps for them. It's at that point, she says to herself, maybe I should make the jump and start a legal tech company. I was never planning on starting a company. I always thought I would be a lawyer forever, and originally... The very first thing I wanted to do was help these people build these apps. So at first I was like, told my engineer, I was like, hey, can you actually help me build a platform that would help me automate this work for these people who were coming and reaching out to us so that I could say they have these questions or this this information they want to display on the screen. Going back to like the TurboTax example, I think is really helpful to visualize. So you go onto TurboTax, they ask you a bunch of questions or they give you instructions. That would be the input. So allowing you to ask questions. And then the output would be the documents that are generated. So I wanted my engineer to help me build a platform 
where I could build tools for other lawyers originally. And then we started to realize that it wasn't really going to be as scalable for me to be building these tools for all these people. And so that's when we decided to create a client-facing tool. And it was, you know, I always say it in like a few sentences of, oh, yeah, and then I I left my law firm and started a legal <laughs> tech company. But it was actually a very arduous, difficult decision because I had been working at a firm for very long. You know, it's hard to give up your stable every two weeks salary and go to every two weeks your bank account is going down because you're paying an engineer to to build software for you and you're you're generating no, re- no revenue. But I sort of felt like, if I didn't leave to go do this, I really thought there was a huge opportunity here. And I felt like if I didn't go do it, someone else would. And if I failed, I could always come back to the law firm and you know knock on their door a year later and be like, hey, will you take me back? What was the year that you made the jump? And what was the final thing, if there was one final thing, that pushed you over the edge and said, I got to do this? So I left at the beginning of 2018. And that, at first, we were actually continuing to build the domestic violence tool. So we were pushing that forward into the market. And we were alongside that thinking about how could we build this tool that would enable us to automate other expertise. And I guess, what was the final thing that pushed me over the edge? I think it was a a long series of pro and con lists that I (laughs) kept analyzing and looking at and, and thinking, okay, I need to go do this. And a combination of that and also, you know, getting your bonus at the end of the year and, and realizing that after a bonus is the best time to leave a firm. <laughs> yeah. So your company's called Gavel now, but it was previously called Documate. Was it called Documate when you started it? Well, so when we first started, we still were calling it Help Self Legal. So it's actually sort of our second name change. But it, because we were still working on some of the specific tools of the domestic violence tool, the name was Help Self Legal at first. When we launched what is now Gavel, which we launched uh, at the beginning of 2019, we changed the name to Document because the core components of our platform are document automation and workflow automation. And so that was the name of the platform then. And then we started to realize that we are so much more than document automation. We are client intake, client portal, billing, communication and messaging, data management. And the name Document was becoming limiting for us where people only thought you could do pure internal document automation, they didn't realize it had all this other capability. And so we went through a whole rebrand at the end of last year and like a whole rebrand exercise, and we launched our rebrand officially at the end of January of this year. So let's talk about that. The name was kind of limiting. So you go to Gavel, which is more broad and kind of relates to law in general. You're at a barbecue and you see somebody ask you what you do. Maybe they're potentially interested in the product. What do you tell them? How do you sell them on it? Gavel is a no-code platform, meaning you don't need to know how to code, that allows you to build end-to-end legal products or automation for your firm. And so that's sort of our short version. But the components of that are client intake, document automation, client portal, billing, and then data management and analysis. And then how do they customize it? I'm sure you've got some modules that are built for client intake, for, for billing, for punching out documents related to the case itself. How do users customize it? No matter what area of law you're in and no matter what language you're building in, you can build on Gavel. And we have really put a lot of our focus and energy on the product side into making it a really easy to understand system. So you log into the system and we have almost like a drag and drop functionality, like a click functionality, where you start with your inputs. 
So you start with telling the system, what is the information you want to gather? Like you want to gather the client's name and, you know, all their children's names and all their bank accounts, bank account information. You set that all up. And then you connect that over to your documents. So you will say, okay, if the person says they're married and they have three minor children, then I may want this document to show up and I want this paragraph to show up inside of this document and I want those children's names to be listed in this way. It is very simple to set up. We actually have unlimited customer support for that reason because no one really ever needs that much customer <laughs> support because they're able to watch you know, a video or two on our website, talk to our team if they want to, and get up and running pretty quickly. So it spits out forms. Now, it sounds like you do some from scratch, but you have the example California. You're a California lawyer. Very form-driven, judicial counsel forms. Can it handle those? Yes. Can it take input from the user and push out a judicial counsel approved form? Yes, absolutely. So there's two types of documents that people usually automate on Gavel. One would be more common is the Word documents because there's so much more that you can do on Word documents to create granular logic. But PDFs are the other. So any kind of court form, any kind of government form where it has those fillable fields, you can connect those into questions that you and data that you've gathered and customize how it's output. So sometimes, like you know, like we talked about in this tax example, tax form might not look very complicated because it's just, you know, it's a specific set of fields. But each of those fields, it's actually a lot of thought has to go into what you fill in into each of those fields. And so the whole concept behind our logic engine is allowing you to embed those rules into those fields and make it really simple and easy for the end user. So it can produce documents, but can it also push data to other apps through Zapier or something, through an API? Yes, both. So we have a Zapier integration. You could pull data into Gavel. You could push data out of Gavel. You could push documents out of Gavel if you want to post documents somewhere, for example. And then we also have a public API. So if, if you don't want to use Zapier or if you the tool you want to integrate with doesn't have Zapier integrated, then you can do it through our regular API or webhooks. So the Zapier thing leads me to two things. So every time I get a chance to push this on the podcast, I do. It, Zapier is so underutilized and legal. I, I wish more people know about it. And I noticed you wrote an article for Zapier. I wrote an article for Zapier. I mean, half the things we do in a day are connected to Zapier some way, somehow. But the reason I bring this up is you were on another podcast and you pointed out, which I agree wholeheartedly, that legal teams are more and more using apps that aren't quote-unquote legal tech. It's more what other people are using, what other people in their company or their clients are using. And I think it's very important. And Zapier's a good example of that because what Zapier is, it connects one app to another if there's not a direct connection between the two. So how did you come about that opinion? What were you seeing in the marketplace that led you to believe that? We see this a lot with our customers where we have a lot of customers, for example, who connect into things like Clio or other practice management systems that are specifically legal. But we're starting to see more and more of our customers start to use other systems like HubSpot, for example, right. or, or MailChimp or Constant Contact for these other aspects of their practice where they realize they maybe don't even necessarily need a purpose-built tool for legal, or maybe one just doesn't exist right now. And so we've just been seeing an uptick in the usage of Zapier and an uptick in the types of tools that, that people use. And there's so many unique use cases. Like one of my favorite that someone actually on our platform just posted the other day is integrating with uh, direct mail, like snail mail tools. So there's a tool called Lob, 
And so one of our customers, they built up a whole tool for, for tenants. And at the end of the process, the documents that are generated get pushed into this direct mailing tool and a physical letter actually goes out to all oh, the parties that you need to notify. That it's is genius. So cool. That is <laughs> genius. Because there's there's so many areas of the law where you still got to send physical notice and, and sort of like serve as a process and stuff. That, that That's cool. Exactly. I just, I just love to hear about stuff like that. That would just need some notary to zap into the system too. That, <laughs> exactly. That'll be the last step. I think that's the last step. Exactly. Remaining offline. So you developed this app. Did your counterpart, your friend that's the engineer, stay on board? Do you hire a team? How do you actually develop Documate, now Gavel? So now we're a much bigger team. We are almost 20 people on the team. About half of those are developers. And so we have a, a lot of moving pieces within our product. We also have a customer team because customer support and customer success is incredibly important to us as well. So we are launching lots of new features this year and a lot of our time gets spent on product development running those product ideas and the prototypes of what we're building by our, our customers and understanding and getting their feedback and then going out and developing those tools so we have we have a lot of work ahead of us you see prototypes and a lot of work ahead of you but i saw too that you're a fan of releasing stuff quickly even if it's buggy yes why is that and what have you learned from that Maybe not as much buggy anymore. Um, in the <laughs> in the very early days, I'm I'm a fan. Like if you are if you're launching something for the first time, and you don't have a lot of users, launch it even if it's buggy because those very early users they'll be forgiving. And especially if you give them stuff for free and they're accessing sort of a, a beta version of of your tool, then they'll be wonderful. And I think one thing that does go along with that though is not necessarily compromising on quality, but compromising on features. Where we now, every time we're about to launch a new feature, we think, okay, what is the minimum viable product, so the MVP, for this feature that we're about to launch? Do we need all of these bells and whistles, or could we launch it with the one version and then tack these other pieces of features on afterwards if customers say that right. they really want those features? I think it's overlooked because a lot of people think they got to answer every question before they roll out a product. And when they do that, it slows them down and it, did, it doesn't get rolled out that quickly. And then a lot of those features aren't even used, right? Exactly. And it's interesting because we've seen that happen with us before too, where there may have been a piece of a feature that we were like, this is going to take, you know, an extra month of development. So we are really sad that we're not going to include it in this version. And then like a year goes by and no one's asked for it yet. So yeah. um, it's still something that it was a good idea for us not to include. Obviously, one of the benefits of using automation in a, a product like Gavel is saving your time. I think something that kind of flies on the radar, but I think it's generally understood, though. Cuts down on errors because it takes a lot of the human element out of it. And you can be consistent. But there are other benefits. And especially to lawyers, there's other ways to use this to, to build your practice, to maybe make more money. What are you seeing out there to those ends, the benefits that aren't just saving time and automating a process? It's definitely, as you touched on with that last piece, the huge opportunity for new business models and the productization of legal services. So there is a huge portion of the American population and beyond who needs legal services and has a disposable income to spend on those legal services. But they just can't afford the average hourly rate of an attorney. And so if you're able to provide those customers, those clients, with tools that are more efficient 
and that have different business models. So they're priced differently, whether they're flat fee, subscription fee, pay-per-use fee. You actually open up a huge opportunity for a market that allows you to grow and scale your firm. So that's, I think, the biggest takeaway and learning that we've seen in especially a lot of the firms that built legal products and marketed them on our platform. What you're saying there is lawyers can compete with LegalZoom, right? Maybe add a layer of expertise LegalZoom doesn't necessarily have because obviously there's some pretty unique and maybe complicated or niche legal questions that LegalZoom can get you part of the way there, but not, not complete it. Absolutely. And I'm actually a huge fan of, well, there, you, I think you said two things there that were really important. One is lawyers building legal tech tools. They are building something like LegalZoom, but with the huge credibility of having a lawyer right. backing it. You can say, I built this. Here are the you know X number of years of experience I have. Here's when it was last updated and what it takes into consideration. So you have that credibility. And then in addition to that, you're building a legal tech product that is really something that could be a hybrid model. It doesn't necessarily need to just be technology, but it can be something that, you know, you have unbundled services where they generate documents and then maybe you give them two hours of advice and then they maybe generate some more documents and then maybe they you do some document review for an hour. That hybrid model, I think we tend to think in black and white so often that you have to either build a tech tool or you have to provide full scope service, but there's a big opportunity for a hybrid model where everyone is happy. Which I think proves the point that an expert system is AI, right? Because that's the big deal now is AI. Especially in law, people know it can get you a lot of the way there, but it's just not trusted enough and you still need a human to approve whatever the AI told you. Like, you know, let's use chat GPT, everybody's talking about it. You can ask it a question about a contract and it's going to get you 75, 80% of the way there. But the other 20% is important and that's why you need the human to come in and do it. And I think in your case, what you alluded to there is Client fills out a form, the lawyer looks at it and says, oh, but you said this, but maybe you meant this and because of this implication, right? Yeah, exactly. What's on the roadmap? What are you guys working on? What's, what's the next milestone? So next big pieces of our platform that we're working on on the product side are really enhancing the client portal experience. So we do have a client portal right now, but we are enhancing what you can do in terms of bundling different workflows together, how you can bill for those services and how you could present them to your users. So that's the next phase of our development, and we have a bunch of features that are coming out around that in the next first set are coming out in about a month and um, rolling out over the course of the next few months as well. Dorna, appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about Gavel, get a hold of you. Where do you want them to go? You can always go to our website at www.gavel.io. Love getting personal emails. If anyone wants to email me directly at dorna at gavel.io. And uh, I'm also on all the social medias and there are not a lot of other Dornas out there. So you'll probably find me pretty easily. Okay, that's a wrap for today's episode. As always, we really appreciate you listening. If you want to subscribe, you can find us on most major podcast platforms like Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, etc. Also, if you like us enough, I hope you leave us a favorable review. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Technically Legal.